Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Acts. Pastor George examines a too often used word and how the early church set themselves apart from the culture around them. Let's listen together. I knew this was going to be a great day when I got in front of the mirror and tied my tie and remembered how. It's been a year and a half. The series of sermons that we have been involved in really began way back at the first of the year with a series on the supernatural fusion in the person of Jesus Christ, who is described in the New Testament as holy God and at the same time holy man. And we looked at the implications of this in his ministry and we saw how the tension between his humanity and his divinity was always present. And then we decided after Easter and the theme of, of the resurrection of Christ to continue and to preach a series, Pastor Connie and I, based on the book of Acts primarily, but also uh, the letters of Paul and other apostles to the early church, to uh, see that the church itself was a supernatural fusion. That, <clears throat> that between, the, uh, between a fusion between the living presence of the Holy Spirit and the dreadfully human institutions of denominations, hierarchies, conflicts, and pastor, pastor postures, not pastors, postures, <clears throat> sometimes it's the same, of self-importance. The church is a supernatural fusion. We need to be reminded of this because the natural so often overwhelms us and we forget that our existence as a church and as believers in Jesus Christ is an evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. By studying the early days of the church in the book of Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection, to see what this newborn church was like and the various steps of its coming out into uh, ministry, we've learned so much. We've gone through some of the previous emphases, the very first thing the church had to learn was waiting. And then we looked at the spirit infilling, which began, of course, on the day of Pentecost, but it progressed through phases as the Holy Spirit manifested his presence in the church. And then we looked at the guidance and the many ways in which the Lord guides his church uh, miraculously. We looked at worship we looked at the body life of the church. We looked at outreach, some of it conscious and some un unconscious. And we saw how the church began to embrace the others, particularly Samaritans, then Gentiles, who were not naturally part of their circle of, of, of nearness. And then we looked at the organization of the church, which we see as a problem, and it often is, but really is essential. And we saw 
how that emerged in the early church. Well, today, we're going to look at another theme, and that is the differentness of the church. It's kind of a weak word, but I wanted it to be as amorphous as possible because we're not sure how we're supposed to be different. The Christian church had been given the great commission by Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel, but how were they to do that and how were they to be that kind of ministry? Well, the first thing we notice about the uh, emergence of the church that was different, the first obvious difference was that they told the gospel story. That's what Jesus told them to do, and they did it. Now, there are two important words when we say they told the gospel story. One, told. It doesn't say they preached, because some of them were preachers and some weren't. But they had something to share, and they shared it. It was simple. It was incomplete. It was not eloquent. But people knew the first difference they knew about them was that they proclaimed the name of Jesus. They confessed his name. And so they were forced to express what that meant. What is the gospel that they preached? Now, when we think of this, we might think of how we were taught what the gospel is. Maybe you learned the four spiritual laws by which we become believers and, and the emphasis on the cross of Christ. They didn't have these helps. Uh, the first thing Jesus said when he came into the world, as he expressed what the gospel is, the first thing he said is uh, that the gospel is that the kingdom of God has come near. And in his presence, the kingdom of God has come near. That is, there's something better in life, and it's closer to you than you think. And that is the gospel. And we put different words to it, but that's the gospel story they told. In telling that story, the second important difference about them is that they had a power beyond themselves. This is most obviously seen in the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus had prophesied, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We read about their dramatic infilling when the Holy Spirit came, when they speak in, spoke in tongues that were not their natural tongues, when they had all kinds of excitement and ecstasy, and they were bold, even though they were people normally would be background people. And then that spirit in filling, that second great difference about the church uh, was seen every time they went to a new people group. When they went to the Samaritans, there were more displays of the Holy Ghost. And when they went to the Gentile world, there were more displays. So the Lord had a way of making it clear that these people had a power beyond themselves almost like they glowed with something special. And the third important thing that was different about them that people started to notice is 
that they loved each other. There was a, an unusual kind of bonding between them. They loved each other. That was a high value that Jesus had taught, and, uh, and they took it seriously. It wasn't always easy, and they had to learn some hard lessons. But the Apostle John wrote, whoever, in 1 John 2.10, whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and is such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. In the middle of the second century, a great church historian, Tertullian, wrote, look, he wrote about the outside world, look how they, how they, he's quoting the people around him, look how these Christians love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. That was noticeable to people. Uh, people are willing to give each other up or to give up on each other. But these Christians hung in together. And the fourth thing that the world began to notice about them was that they cared more about the spirit than the flesh. This is hard to understand in a materialistic world that focuses on immediate needs being met. But Jesus had taught the preeminence of the spiritual over the physical, and they tried to follow that. Their values showed that. They cared more about the spirit than the flesh. First John again, chapter 2, verse 15. John wrote to the church, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of riches comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. And when the church has not lived up to its supernatural fusion reality, it's because we've let the world <clears throat> dominate over our spiritual values. We've let the flesh dominate over the spirit. And the fifth thing that distinguished the early believers was <clears throat> their, that their behavior glorified God. Now, that doesn't mean they were perfect. But there were things that they did that were clearly done because of their belief in Jesus and in his heavenly Father. And people around them knew that. Jesus' personal challenge was their standard in Matthew 5, 1 to 16, where he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. A sixth thing that was noticeable about the church is that they had a living hope. Now, sometimes we forget how hopeless this world is. And if we watch a little television or maybe just listen to our neighbors, we'll see how much people want to avoid focusing on the future because hope in the future is not part of their reality. But for Christians, hope for the future is what motivates us. This living hope 
Peter wrote about it in his letter, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to give your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. As a Christian stood before a lion in the Colosseum and looked up to heaven and praised God, that was a Christian witness of the living hope that every believer has. In a downer world, the optimism of Christians is a powerful witness. They believed, the early Christians did, that the best is yet to be. Jesus had promised a coming kingdom in which all wrongs will be righted. And they believed in that. And that's what motivated them. And then the final thing I want to mention about what distinguished the early church is encapsulated in the word humility. There were a lot of things they could have been proud of. They could have boasted in their salvation or in that their lives were better than before they knew the Lord as their savior, but they were humble. They, this quality began in their fellowship with one another, but it spilled over into the way they related to the outside world as well. Peter exhorted, or, or rather Paul exhorted them in Philippians uh, chapter two, verse three, uh, to expand this. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Even the lady in the supermarket who seems to be putting a gun in your back. And in verse 14, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. Man, I'm not a star in this world. You don't feel that way. And yet, if you have these qualities in your life, and if we have these qualities as a church, we do shine in contrast to the world around us. Now, there's one thing I did not put on this list, and it's the word holiness. It's not that it's inappropriate, but that it's so misunderstood. The world did not notice the church because they were so holy. First Peter did encourage us in First Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he encouraged us, instead, as he who has called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quote from the law in Leviticus that Peter is sharing with the church. Holiness is a quality that Christians, I'm going to say the word should, but I want you to know it's in quotes, that Christians should have. But the problem is, holiness is so often misunderstood and misportrayed. It can, it can look cute. Sometimes it can seem a little funny as this one piece of cheese is saying to the other one, oh, you're holier than, than I. It's a, 
<clears throat> or it can be associated, unfortunately, with the church in a negative way. The next slide. This holiness is a real quality. And, and holiness is a strong emphasis in the Old Testament. Holiness, by the way, the Hebrew word kadosh, means separation. And if we're going to witness to the world, separation is a mixed blessing. The differentness of separation may be a good thing, but the isolation of separation doesn't help us connect with people. In fact, the root of the word in the Old Testament, the separation is the separation between God and his creation. The word, as, a, as its root, it's the, the, the Hebrew word idea of cut, to cut a different. God is cut off from his creation in that he's not made of the same stuff as his creation. He is totally other. And the great lesson the Hebrews had to learn was that God is totally other. Everything in the temple worship was to prove that. All of the, the laws that came with uh, honoring the ark and the various parts of the temple were to show how different God is. Now we, in our culture and our Christ, average Christian uses, we use the word righteous and holy interchangeably. Don't we? Right? They're very different words. Holy does not talk about behavior. Holy is in reference to God, is recognizing that he is who he is. Righteousness has to do with behavior. And therefore, we can compare righteousness to a series of laws, a series of do's and don'ts. But you can't do that with holiness. Holiness is just how we relate to God. The misunderstanding of holiness as separation has led to some real misunderstandings in the, in the world and how we relate to it. It really doesn't begin with us. It goes back to Israel, the Jewish people. God was trying to separate them from the world back then. And so they were taken out of Egypt and they were given the tabernacle as a place of worship. They learned to respect this and to uh, see this as holy, holy, holy. That's where God is. And then David and Solomon did the tabernacle one better by building a great temple, which only came to fruition under Solomon. But do you know the glory days of Israel when they were one kingdom under the great kings David and Solomon lasted only about 80 years? Out of 25 to 20, 20 2,500 to 3,000 years of history of the Jewish people, 80 years were their glory days, unless you include Netanyahu, I don't know. But the, the tabernacle period was about 300 years, was a struggle. Then David and Solomon, their 80 years. Then the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians came in and conquered the southern kingdom. They were in captivity. There was no land of Israel. 
until 1948, they were always subjugated to someone else. The Jews existed for most of their time in what they know as the diaspora. That's a Greek word, and you've probably heard of it. It's used with other peoples. There's an Armenian diaspora of people from Armenia who live all around the world. And it means dispersion. And when the Jewish people were dispersed all around the world, they had to figure out how to deal with that. And the whole issue of whether we're going to assimilate or whether we're to fit in or whether we're going to emphasize our separateness became a real struggle in Judaism. I actually got a master's degree by writing a thesis on this, so, but I'm humble. But if you read in the New Testament about in the early church, they ran into the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They're the two different ways in which Jews in the dispersion handled things. The Hellenists tried to fit in. They learned the Greek language. They wore the clothing. They did all kinds of things. They ignored many of the kosher laws. The others, the separatists, the Hebrews in the New Testament, they tried to emphasize their Jewishness, to hang together as a people. Well, you know, that model is seen in the church as well. Because the church became dispersed through the world. And there's always been the struggle of separation. It's a denominational struggle, and we can't go into it, but the separatist movements and various groups have led to a lot of our denominations. And there's all kinds of assorted history of blaming and shaming and name-calling, all of which uh, comes from a, a, a distorted kind of separation. But there's also the separation of a believer in the modern world, which is a struggle. How do we live Christian lives in a world that does not honor us? It's so easier, it's so easy to fall into the pattern of becoming holier than thou. This is a name of a stage play which I have not uh, seen and maybe I never will, but it, it seems to describe the holier than thou attitude in a lot of our churches. I was brought up as a kid that I should be in the world, but not of the world. And that is awesomely true, but it's not something you can make happen by changing a few rules. It happens only if you really are not of the world. If you really are of God. So holiness comes from a relationship with God which changes us from the inside out. Now I want to introduce to you uh, a young man by the name of Dave Gardner who uh, Judy and I were blessed to get to know in our first church right after Billy Graham had preached in uh, the Boston, uh, I forget what the facility was, but we began to get follow-up cards. And as a pastor, I went to visit Dave and Carol Gardner. And that was a journey. Man, it started a, the next 10 years of our ministry there revolved around that couple. They were bikers. I mean, they were hardcore 
They raced up and down the East Coast. Carol and Dave, she had stopped riding the bikes because she had a baby. But Dave, that was a problem in their marriage. And heavy drinking, some drug use, uh, all the wrong stuff. No Christian background. And they went forward in the Billy Graham crusade. And I was given the follow-up card. When I got there on a Tuesday night, they had already been visited by the Jehovah Witnesses. And Carol let me in and, and she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm reading the Bible. I'm so confused with what these people taught me and everything. And so she uh, had a, a glass of orange juice as she talked to me. I found that was half vodka. <laughs> uh, and, and that was my introduction to her. And then every Tuesday night for months, the Jehovah Witnesses came at 7 and I came at 8.30. And that was our discipleship. They became part of our church. They became magnets. A young people, we had a brand new pews with a white back and there was a black line. I couldn't figure out what it was. It was a buckle for motorcycle jackets. And that was a, a, a phase of our ministry there that I'll never forget. And Dave, he actually was... It, they wanted him to be a deacon, and he kept resisting. And, and one day he talked to me, and he said, you know, there's a problem I have. I feel like I'm seeing how Christians behave, and I feel like I, I, like I ought to have these flowers. I'm, I'm like a tree, and I ought to have these flowers. So I'm putting these flowers on, but they're fake flowers. And we had a chance to talk through. The fake flowers don't fool anybody. He was trying to behave like a Christian and wasn't coming from the inside. And that taught me a lesson I've never forgotten. That the holiness that speaks is the holiness that comes from within. Salvation is a process. It begins with our justification. That happened to Dave and Carol that first night when they accepted the Lord at the Billy Graham crusade. But then the process goes through sanctification and glorification. Now, glorification doesn't happen until we go to heaven. But sanctification is the real critical issue. How do we get sanctified in our life? Now, there's some people talk about a second work of grace, and then you become holy. And that's connected sometimes with speaking in tongues or something else. Trouble is, they don't stay holy. So... Uh, they need a third work or work of grace or whatever. So our belief, and I think it's practical, is that sanctification is a lifelong process. And it's something that happens from the inside out. And it happens because the Holy Spirit truly is working in us as individual believers and as a church. And that becomes manifest. Then if we keep that in mind, and recognize these aren't flowers that we've made and pinned on the tree, but these are flowers that are blooming because of the spiritual life in us. That becomes a witness. People still may mistake our holiness for phoniness and hypocrisy. We can't control that, but we have to be honest with God and honest with each other and call each other out when we're pinning paper flowers on it. Holiness in our lives is important. First of all, it's the tr evidence of transformation that we are going through the process of sanctification. 
Secondly, holiness is a witness when we live it out authentically in our lives. Thirdly, holiness gives us personal assurance. There is a change in me. I don't think the way I used to. And then finally, when holiness becomes natural, when it just flows, that's, that's so comforting that you don't have to work at it. Oh yeah, you always have to be on your guard. But that what's blooming is not something you made, but it's something that God is making. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, says, rid yourselves therefore of all malice, all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants. Remember the newborn church. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, pure, holy spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a royal, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Man, that sounds good to me. And I love fellowship with people who are experiencing the Lord that way. Finally, I'd like to finish with a challenge to how we can be authentically who we are in Jesus and that we can be, therefore, natural witnesses to who he is and what he's doing. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see, even though they may malign you as evildoers, that they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. John 17, the words of Jesus. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. You do not belong to the world. Lord, we thank you that you have really helped us to experience the new birth, not just once, but in a continual process of emergence of that which you're doing us sanctifying us according to your will and grace and in your time to be your representatives. Help us to support one another. Forgive us 
for any words of criticism, any feelings we have about each other that are not constructive, questioning each other's motives, but to believe in the work the Holy Spirit is doing in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer, please reach out to us right now at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, we pray God's blessings on you this week.